I want you to pull out your Bible and open up to the book of Obadiah. Okay, the book of Obadiah is difficult to find, I know. Um, but it is towards the end of the Old Testament. If you need to, by the way, uh, at the very front of your Bible, there's uh, going to be a table of contents, and you can just uh, open up there, and you'll, you'll find out what page you need to turn to. But the book of Obadiah sits between um, the book of Amos and the book of Jonah. It is right before Jonah. Uh, it is in what is called the Minor Prophets. Uh, the minor prophets are towards the end of the Old Testament. They're minor just in the sense because they're short. They're, they're short books of the Old Testament. They're, they're prophets. You know, they wrote short books. And Obadiah is the shortest of the minor prophets. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It has 21 verses in the entire book. One chapter, 21 verses. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And really through, through this month, we're going to be studying the book of Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah is a book that is often overlooked, one, because it's towards the end of the Old Testament and people are kind of, uh, by the time they, they hit Obadiah in their Bible in a year plan, they're getting tired and starting to skip things and the shortest book in the Old Testament gets skipped over quite a bit. But just because it's short does not mean that it has little meaning. In fact, Obadiah carries a heavy punch. Uh, Obadiah is, um, it is a difficult passage. What it's doing is it's bringing judgment, the judgment of God, onto a nation. Okay, so it's promising the judgment and really the, in, the utter destruction of the nation of Edom and then promising that Judah will be rebuilt. Okay, um, this is the only prophetic book in the Bible addressed specifically to a Gentile nation, right? God revealed his plans to the Edomites through an Israelite prophet. Uh, that, that is interesting. It's kind of like, um, like asking the victim of a crime to deliver the jury's verdict or, or the judge's sentence in a court case, um, in order to really understand the book of Obadiah, we have to understand who the Edomites are. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're really going to focus on who the Edomites are and, and why this extreme judgment is coming to the Edomites. Okay, so let me just uh, share with you who the author is. Uh, surprisingly enough, uh, it's a guy named Obadiah. All right, Obadiah is uh, the author of this book. Nobody knows who Obadiah was. In the Old Testament, there are 13 men named Obadiah, um, and really this one doesn't stand out. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what his family is. We don't know anything about him other than God inspired him to write this book, and his name was Obadiah. We don't even know when this book was written. Some people think that it was written sometime around 800 B.C., um, most people, and, and I agree with this belief, uh, believe that it happened somewhere around 587, just after the fall of Jerusalem. When the Babylonians come in, destroy Jerusalem, rip apart the temple, uh, most people think that Obadiah was written in that time. So that's the author. That's kind of the context of going on. Um, who is Edom? We have to understand that before we can really jump into this book. Because the theme of the book is really, to be honest with you, it's God's wrath coming to Edom. It's important to know something about the history of this kingdom that God is so clearly and so harshly bringing judgment against. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, 
The Edomites, by the way, are the subject, or the recipients, I suppose, of probably the most difficult passage in the entire Bible. When we read the Bible, we're encouraged by, th- by verses that say things like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or with God, all things are possible. Those, those are encouraging, and we like to hear those verses. But when we turn to Psalm chapter 137, things get very uncomfortable very quick. And in speaking about the Edomites, this is what the Lord says. He says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's an uncomfortable passage. And to be honest, Obadiah is kind of a response to Psalm 137. God is remembering what the Edomites did to Jerusalem. As far as geography goes, Edom... Uh, which, by the way, is also known in the Bible as Seir, Hor, and Esau. It was the territory bordering Judah to the southeast. I've got a map uh, that's going to pop up behind me. You can kind of see where Edom is. Down in the bottom right, you see Edom. uh, And then up there in the middle, you see Judah, and you see where Jerusalem is, and you kind of get an idea of where things are. All right? Um, Its location isn't that necessarily for us to remember. Um, There are two factors that, that kind of show the importance of Edom. First, it was situated along a trade route, a very popular trade route between Syria and Egypt. And because of this trade route, Edom became very wealthy and very prosperous. You know, they're collecting tolls and businesses happening and all of that stuff. Okay? So they become uh, very wealthy. Uh, the second and more important uh, factor is uh, its natural strength and security. The central area is uh, characterized by these red sandstone cliffs that rise up to, to more than 5,000 feet above sea level. I mean, they're just huge, right? And they, these are easily fortified. And because they lived in basically a natural fortress, the people of Edom were free to go out and wage war and attack, for example, Judah. They'd come out and attack the Israelites, and then they would retreat back to their fortress, and the Israelites could not get in and and attack them back. And so they'd come out, attack, and, you know, plunder and do all that stuff, and then they'd run home, and the Israelites couldn't do anything about it because they couldn't invade successfully this fortress. The earliest history of Edom is really, and no one really knows where they came from, but we know that by the time, that, by the time of Abraham, there were people living in this area already uh, because in Genesis chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, uh, when after Abraham goes and he rescues Lot and he, he deals with that, what we see is uh, the Horites in the hill country of Seir. Abraham went and, and dealt with some people from there. Earlier in biblical, uh, or somewhat later in biblical history, we see Edom appear again in the story of Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau. When Jacob was returning to the land after he went and he spent time, you know, getting his wives, and you know that story, he gets his wives, he's with his father-in-law Laban, he spends all these years there. Abraham is coming back after he had deceived Esau, and Esau comes to meet Jacob from Edom. 
where he had gone with his people. The Bible refers to this by saying, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. That's Genesis chapter 32. And it adds that after their meeting, after Esau came to greet Jacob, Esau returned there. Later, Edom appears in the story of the Exodus, right? the people uh, of Israel, you know, as they're leaving Egypt. Uh, Israel wants to travel through Edom in order to get to Israel and get to, in order to get to the promised land, and the Edomites wouldn't let them, even though Moses offers to pay and, and to kind of uh, make things you know, a, a good deal. David conquers the Edomites in a, in a, a great battle in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And from that time on through the time of Solomon, uh, the Edomites were subject to Israel. But um, God uses the Edomites to bring judgment on Solomon for his idolatry. The end of Edom is really a mystery. We know only that the nation lost its independence in the 5th century B.C. We know um, that it was controlled up to about 312 B.C., but in this period, when it was controlled, Edom was called uh, Idumea, and it is the place where a guy named Herod the Great is from. Herod the Great, who is the king when Jesus was born, and he sent out and he had all the, the male children two years and under killed, that Herod was from the area of Edom. Since about 600 AD, the area where the Edomites lived has been basically abandoned, unoccupied, you know, except for a few shepherds and a couple military outposts, because it's in modern-day Jordan, by the way. Um, it's been brought to nothing. There's nobody lives there. There's no culture. There's no people there. Obadiah, the prophecy in Obadiah, was fulfilled. The people were destroyed. They're gone. So, let's read Obadiah, uh, we have a little understanding of, of who these people were. Uh, just understand that they were antagonists to the Israelites pretty much through the entire Old Testament. They, one last thing, they align themselves with the Babylonians. When the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem, rip apart the temple, and exile uh, the Jews to Babylon, Edom aligned themselves with the Babylonians and then kind of seized the opportunity to take some land from Judah. And so we see Obadiah. Obadiah, by the way, most likely was written right after that occurred. Starting with verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will, make you a, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. 
you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. That's a strong prophecy. But the, the promise here, verses 1 to 9, is basically you are going to be utterly and completely destroyed. Your people will be no more. Your culture will be no more. Your kingdom will be no more. You will not exist. I'm going to remove you from humanity. That's the promise here. What would I write to prophesy about the fall of Edom? And understand that these are not good people. These, uh, by the time that Obadiah is writing, they're the descendants of Esau. They're constantly attacking, constantly doing things. But why do we see this? Most of us have never even heard of Edom. Most of us don't, don't really pay attention to who the Edomites were. So why is Obadiah giving such a strong condemnation against the Edomites? The fall of Edom was going to be God's judgment on it because of its overriding and offensive sin. But the sin that they're guilty of is not what you might think. The scripture tells us that their sin is not that they attacked God's people, not that they were the enemy of God's chosen covenant community. Their sin is pride. These are a prideful people. And because of their pride, God is going to destroy them. Think about that for a minute. In in these verses, the concern is the sin mentioned in in verse 3. Obadiah quotes it. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You're prideful. In fact, you're so prideful, you've been deceived. Now, We would understand, for example, if God was bringing judgment against them because they were enemies or or because of their idolatry or or because they had, you know, been a part of destroying the temple, that would make sense in our mind. But they're being convicted of pride here. And most people, most people today for sure, don't consider pride all that bad. It's, it's not that big of a deal. We don't equate pride as being evil. And we, we certainly don't view it as something for which God would destroy an entire nation, an entire people. But that has more to say about our light view of sin than it does about God's character or what the Scriptures say. Look, according to the Bible, pride is the sin of sins. It's, it's the most damning. One theologian wrote, how difficult it is to awaken even Christian people to an understanding of the real nature of pride. G. Campbell Morgan said, one may stand before a congregation and hold their breathless interest by a recountal of dramatic stories of lives ruined by drink and other carnal sins. But try to expound a text such as this from Obadiah, the pride of thine heart has deceived thee. And there's a marked difference in attention and response. 
The reason is the fact that the true nature of pride is so little understood. Let me illustrate this a little bit. Consider these two statements. <clears throat> what if I were to say, if I were, if I were describing someone, and I, I'm, I'm describing this guy, and I say, you know, he, he's a good guy, but, he, but he's proud. That's a statement. It doesn't come across as inappropriate or shocking. As, as though being good and proud are not, you know, contradicting. We've come to believe that goodness and pride can work together in the same life and, and produce good things. We say, well, you know, yeah, yeah he, he's, he's proud. He, he, he has pride, but, you know, he's a good guy. Now consider this statement. He's a good guy, but he's a pornographer. Immediately, immediately when I say that, immediately when we think that, you say, well, wait, hang on. Those two things can't go together. A pornographer cannot be a good guy. Those two things are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. They can't be. We can't be at the same time good and a pornographer. It doesn't make sense. Which, by the way, I agree with you if that's what you thought. But in the sight of God, pride is, is just as bad as pornography or, or stealing or lying or, or whatever it is. The full measure of pride is seen when, when we kind of recall, we think that that was, that was the sin of Satan. Did you know that? Satan, the father of sin, um, in fact, his fall is recorded in Isaiah chapter 14. If you've ever wondered about that, Isaiah chapter 14 kind of talks about it. Satan says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will, I will. By the way, it's also the pride in the garden and the fall of Adam and Eve. They want to be like God. They, they don't want to be lorded over by God. They want to be like God. They want to be God. Nothing lies so much at the heart of the problems of the human race as this prideful desire to kind of take over God's place. We say, I don't need God. I can do this. I don't, I don't need God to lord over me to tell me what to do, to tell me what right and wrong are. I can do it. We want to take God's place which amounts to the same thing, to pretend that, that I, I can do without him. When we do that, when, when we're prideful like this, when we assume that we don't need God, it's a rebellion against him. Sin is not an honest mistake. Sin is not an oopsie-daisy. Sin is a rebellion against the perfect and holy God of heaven. Martin Luther said, sin is an attempt to steal God's throne. Pride says, I don't need God. In fact, I should be God. I should do it. I could do it. If I were God, here's how things would be different. The root of pride is saying that we can do without God. But there are many ways that this expresses itself. Many ways this uh, you know, comes out in life. On the personal level, we can imagine that we can do without God, and you know, in your work, in, in, your, in your life, in your family life, your business, regard to your health. Look, there are a dozen different ways, but 
it's not just personal either. On the national level, remember that Obadiah is written to a nation. On the national level, pride often expresses itself in, in, the, in the characteristic pride of Edom. And I have to tell you what Edom is guilty of, where their pride resides, we can be guilty of as well. And so, again, we find ourselves in kind of an uncomfortable passage of Scripture. Where does Edom's pride rest? First thing we see is in their defenses, and it comes out of verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Remember, we talked about where Edom was and its natural defenses. Why was Edom proud? What, what made them so proud that God brought his judgment? First answer is their, their defenses. Due to their uh, geographical situation, Edom was almost impenetrable. It, it was described that uh, a dozen men could hold off an army of 50,000 who are trying to come in and invade Edom. For years, the extraordinary nature of, of the defenses was, was unknown to biblical scholars who kind of, uh, because of the, the stronghold of Edom at Petra, was lost to the Western world. It was known in ancient times and it was admired. It was lost to Western civilization for about a thousand years until it was rediscovered by a Swiss explorer named John Ludwig Burkhardt in 1812. Burkhardt had heard rumors of the city and wanted to see it, so he knew that he wouldn't be allowed to just go in. So what he did was he told the local, local Arab population that he had made a vow uh, to offer a goat to Aaron at, at Aaron's grave, who was the ancient high priest of Israel. He knew that, that um, the Arabs would allow him in from there. And so uh, they did. They let him in. And it's called Petra today. If you've ever been to Israel, uh, you may have been there. Um, it is one of the, it's one of the, the best spots to go if you ever go to Israel. It's actually in Jordan today. But uh, Burkhart described it. He said, um, it's remarkable. The city is entered through a narrow winding gorge or canyon. It's about a mile long and is in no place really wide. On the average, it's about 15 feet from towering wall to towering wall. A conduit for a small stream runs along its length, a carved aqueduct. In the beginning of many thousands of ornately carved caves in the wall, the caves served as homes for those who once lived there. Toward the end of, toward the, end of the passage, the traveler suddenly comes to the first of the magnificent buildings that have been carved into the face of the rock. It is a temple of Al-Kesna, which towers upward for 130 feet above the canyon floor, rounding another bend the travelers in Petra itself. It's a level valley of slightly less than one square mile surrounded by many mountains. In it are the ruins of the several successive civilizations that have occupied the spot, the last and most impressive being Roman. There are homes, temples, treasuries. In the mountains, there are additional safe areas for defenses this entire area you have to enter it through this little uh trail basically with, with cliffs on both sides and it's about 15 feet wide you can see why it was nearly impossible to successfully invade it's understandable that the inhabitants might say as obadiah reports who can bring me down to the ground with defenses like that natural defenses like that 
We get why, why they were so prideful in their defenses. But God said that it would be brought down. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. That's verse 4. The destruction to be brought about by the Lord would be total, by the way. Complete destruction. The people would be completely destroyed. Their culture removed. They, they would no longer be. It wasn't the kind of destruction that even like an enemy king would bring. Not, not even a mighty kingdom like Babylon could do that. It's the meaning of, the verse, of verse 5, which says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Even if, even if thieves came in to Petra and plundered it, something would be left. They, they wouldn't take everything. No matter how vigilant and systematic they were, they could not carry away every single thing. At harvest time, even the grape pickers, they left grapes. But that's not so with God's judgment. Everything will be destroyed, according to Obadiah. Everything will be taken. God's saying everything will be destroyed. Everything will be taken from you. You, your people, your culture will cease to exist. You'll be no more. Was God being harsh with Edom? I mean, think about it. They're prideful, and so God's just going to obliterate them, just destroy them, like Sodom and Gomorrah, basically, just without the fire. Was God being too harsh? Because they, don't, they didn't really seem to do that. I mean, they don't seem like they're as bad as the Babylonians who destroyed the temple, or the Assyrians who were notoriously violent and wicked and evil. Here's the thing. This is the way it was with all nations. God exalts a nation. Look, those in power see it as a cause for personal pride. They boast that they're better than others and, and can even do without God. And then God brings that nation down. It's been, that's been the case with all the great nations of the world. It's been that way with the Egyptians, it was that way with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. A mighty nation is, is built up, they become prideful, and they, they do their thing, and then they're destroyed. They become mighty, and they become prideful. And then they're taken down, and we can look through history, and we can see empire after empire after empire. But then it begs the question, what about today? I get that the Assyrians are no more. I get that the Babylonians are no more, and the Greeks are no more. I'm not worried about Babylon or the Edomites. But who's the world power today? It becomes a little more uncomfortable when we look at it that way, doesn't it? The same will be true of the powers of today. Unless, of course, the Lord returns before this happens. But would our country be susceptible to this? If you say no way, absolutely not. 
I don't think you quite understand what the scriptures are saying. Is the U.S., for example, destined for this type of destruction? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe the U.S. will last until the Lord returns. Maybe we won't. But here's the thing. We should be warned by God's judgment to Edom. If we look at this and we say, oh yeah, the Edomites are so terrible. Boy, oh boy, they're awful. Good. Get them, God. They deserved it. Boy, they were, they were so prideful in their defenses. Aren't Americans prideful in our defenses? Don't we have the greatest military ever that existed in the entire world? Yes, we do. Yes, we absolutely do. Do we boast in the might of our military? Absolutely, we do. Do we boast that our technology is the greatest in the world? We absolutely do. Do we boast that our economy is the mightiest in, in world history? Absolutely, we do. Is it right that we boast on the things that come from our nation? No, it is not right. We should not boast of of our strength. We boast in what God has done for us. We boast in in the God of heaven. That's where we boast. Yeah, we can can be patriotic and we can can be glad that we live here and we have wonderful freedoms and we have a mighty military and, and extreme wealth. But is that where we should boast? Is is that where our identity should come from? Absolutely not. No way. And if you can read Obadiah and you can see that God is condemning them for their pride in their defenses, first of all, that should make us take a step back and consider what's happening in our country and, and how we view it. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be patriotic. What I am saying is that we most certainly should not boast in what we have done as a nation. And if we do, God says that he can bring down even the mightiest of empires. And I don't know why we would assume that we would be exempt from that. Edom was, they found pride in their defenses. They thought they could never lose. They thought they could never be invaded or taken down. They also found pride in their allies. Remember, they aligned themselves with the Babylonians who came in and destroyed Jerusalem and ripped apart God's temple. Now, don't get me wrong. God, God, had, God had done that. God brought judgment on Judah, okay? But what happened is the Edomites came in, they aligned themselves with the Babylonians, the mightiest, um, the mightiest nation of their day, and then uh, they used that, that allegiance to kind of take some land from Judah. Verse 7, All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Edom was proud over their allies. God mentions in verse 7, this verse reveals a a people who who think that they're secure, not only because of their superb defenses, but because of this network of alliances that they had. They were were friends with the tough guy. They were friends with the the schoolyard bully. They didn't have to worry about Babylon coming into Petra because they were friends. 
Like, well, we, we have these natural defenses. We have, we're wealthy. We're, we're doing okay. And by the way, we have these really powerful friends. Things are going really well for us. They thought they were secure. Not only because of their defenses, because of their, their alliances. Because the, the thing is, is that the people of Edom didn't understand the hearts of men and women. They didn't understand depravity. They didn't understand that these allies would eventually betray them and become their enemy. That's exactly what happened, by the way. Right? It's the same today. Right? Should, we, should we be involved in diplomacy? Absolutely. Should we, should we have allies as a nation? Yes, of course. Absolutely we should. Should we rely on them? Should that be where our hope is? No, because people are sinful. Is it wise to have alliances? Absolutely. But we can't trust in those alliances. Should we have an army? Yes, we should. But we're not to trust in the army. We're to trust in God only. Only. And show up by attempting to establish righteousness and justice in our land. If we don't, we go the way of Edom. We're destroyed. And it is a possibility. That's difficult for an American to think that that's not a possibility. Because we live in peace. We live in a time where our nation is the mightiest in world history. There's one more item that was a factor in their pride, and it was wisdom. It's mentioned in verse 8. Actually, the end of verse 7. You have no understanding. Will I, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? According to the verse, the people were as much saying, look, no matter what comes, no matter, no matter what happens, we can figure out. We, 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 can, we can do this. We can get through it. We know how to get around in this world. We know how to deal with people. We know how to solve problems. We're wise. Hey, we, we know how to put our knowledge to good use. And, and to be honest with you, from the human perspective, this was not just empty arrogance. All right, the Edomites really were noted, uh, really on several places, for their wisdom. They were known in the ancient world as being extremely wise. So one of Job's friends, in fact, the, the foremost of Job's friends, uh, really was the chief, rep, chief representative uh, in that book of, of human wisdom, uh, was, he was a Temanite. He was from Edom. That's right, he wasn't a descendant of Esau, but he was from Edom. Another of Job's friend was a Shuhite, a name that's still given to a mountain in Edom. He was an Edomite too. Edomite is, Edom is also referred to in the phrase, the men of the east. When you see that term, the men of the east, it's talking about the Edomites whose wisdom in some texts is linked to that as, of Egypt is the highest in the ancient world. So in 1 Kings chapter 4, we read, Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East. It's talking about Edomites. And greater than all the wisdom in Egypt. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7, employing uh, the words of Obadiah, he, he says, Is there no longer wisdom in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? E.B. Pussy says this. 
He speaks as though Edom were a known abode of human wisdom, so that it was strange that it was found, that it was found there no more. He speaks of the Edomites as prudent, discriminating, full of judgment, and wonders that counsel should have perished from them. They had it, they had it then before it perished. They thought themselves wise. They were thought so, but God took it away at their utmost need. Look, we today uh, somehow we're back into election cycle. Seemed like that just ended. Uh, but we, you turn on the news, you look at Facebook or whatever it is that you look at for your news, and you see these people uh, advocating for your vote, right? And they they want to be president. They'll just use the presidential election. And, and no matter who it is that you're watching, what they're going to do is they're going to puff themselves up, essentially telling you how wise they are and how they can solve whatever problem is presented in the question. Okay? And so... Uh, what happens if you watch any of the debates or, or any news station, you're going to see anybody say, well, I, I'd solve this by doing this, or I would do that, or you should vote for me. I'm the best because of this, this, and this. Here's how I would respond. They're toting their own wisdom. And the thought is that we're able, we're adequate for, for whatever circumstance comes before us. Whatever the issue is, I can handle it. Trust me. But the thing is, we're not able. We can't solve the world's problems. What we need is both a personal and a national humility. We need to say, God, I, I can't cope with this situation. I, I can't figure this out. I, I can't, and we as a nation can't figure this out. Help us. Teach us repentance. Lead us in the way that we should go. That prayer is invaluable. There are so many issues, both on a personal level and on a national level, where we should turn to God and say, God, we, we don't know the answer. We can't figure this out. We need your wisdom. We need you to lead us. We need you to lead us in repentance. Help us deal with this problem. Here's what we see in Obadiah. God will bring judgment. God, God will bring justice. God will bring justice to those who target the innocent. Abortion, genocide, racial injustice, acts of terrorism, and any of the other issues that require, any of the other issues that require justice. These acts of violence, it, it's a cry for justice. God will bring closure and comfort in his time. That's the message of Obadiah. It's a message taught in Obadiah. It's the promise of Obadiah. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, the rejected twin of the chosen Jacob. The only way to have access to forgiveness is through the covenant that God made to Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, to the world. As Rahab and Ruth and the Ninevites and other Gentiles were covered by, by the covenant, if they were willing to join God's chosen people, the only refuge from God's wrath today is joining the community of believers. Look, it isn't difficult to connect the dots of, of our people from that historical real, reality to warnings about today. The Word of God as sure as the word of God was about the judgment on Edom, so certain is the doom really that awaits all those who reject the forgiveness 
and mercy that's found in Christ Jesus. The same Bible that predicted the devastation of Edom. The same Bible that, that predicted that. Who rejected Yahweh's offer of forgiveness is the same Bible that promises the destruction of those who reject Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's the same God who inspired it, the same book. And you, you can look to Edom, and the Edomites are no longer there. Their culture is gone. The only thing we see is, is, is the, the carvings and those pillars. That's all they left. The same God who predicted that is the same one who tells us, tells us if we reject Christ, we face his wrath. That's something we should consider. It's something you, you have to consider. The Edomites refused to repent. They indulged their pride. They, they puffed themselves up. They're a stiff-necked people. And they faced God's wrath because of it. And the same Bible promises that we will face God's wrath if we reject Christ and refuse to repent. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to be here. And God, we thank you that um, we thank you that you're good and that you're kind. God, we thank you that even though we are sinners and we are prideful, that that you allow us to repent. You allow us to seek forgiveness. You allow us to turn to Christ and put our hope not in ourselves, not in our defenses or in our nation or, or any of that stuff, but in you. God, we pray that, that we would not pray that we would not turn from you, but that we would be humble and cry out for your mercy. God, I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, doesn't know what it means to repent or doesn't know what it means to turn to you, God, that you would reveal yourself to them. You would reveal their sins to them so they would see how desperately they need a Savior. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.